Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl and welcome to episode 23 of Cage Rage a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we watch each and every one of Nicholas Cage's chronological backlog of films in order as we progress ourselves on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And as you all know, there's always room for more. So come in, upgrade your seats to a VIP ticket, kick your shoes off, but don't put them on the chairs because that's just that's just uncalled for, and sit back and relax as we go on this epic and necessary adventure together. So how have you been? How are you this week? Have you had, have you been all right? It's getting a little colder. It's getting a little colder. Had to put on the winter jacket yesterday. Nice, nice denim jacket. Uh, we've got a little, the wool inlining in it, you know, a personal favourite of mine. Technically the second jacket, the first I lost at a karaoke one night, but it's an occupational hazard, isn't it? Karaoke, you know, one minute you're on stage absolutely smashing a rousing rendition of a gay bar by Electric Six. Next, you know, you're shivering outside because you, your coat's been nicked by some absolute fucking lager lout. But there you go. That's what happens, isn't it? So I hope you've had no um, karaoke-related... Uh, negative experiences. I hope yours have been fun and full of merriment as we sing Sweet Home Alabama for the 17th time that night, you fucking cowards. But I am your boy, Double D Dangerous Delicious Dynamite Diamond Boy Daryl Edge. That's a D-D-D-D-D-D-B for sure. That's an acronym. Is that a link? Is that foreshadowing? <laughs> it might be. It is. And this week, we're going into... It's a little year you might know. As 1995, 94 is behind us. We had some hot flims, some big flicks. And this week we go to 1995. It's a big year, a pivotal year in the history of Cage. And I'm very excited for where the career is going to go from here on out. You know, we are climbing up that mountain. We're at the tip of the top. We're just... The tip is there at the tip of the mountain, but there's still the whole hog to go, and that's what we're all about. So we go to 95, and we move to a film clearly titled after my ex-wife, It's Kiss of Death. It's uh, an action thriller starring, of course, Nicolas Cage alongside Horatio Kane, who you might recognise from CSI Miami, a.k.a. David Caruso. We've got Watch You Back, it's Sammy Jack, Jackie's back, Helen Hunt's in it, Ving Rames, and Stanley, he's in fucking everything, Tucci. So a little description about Kiss of Death. After his time in prison, Jimmy Kill Martin keeps his head down and provides for his wife and kids until his cousin Ronnie ropes him into a large-scale car heist that goes tits up. After several more years in the clink, a district attorney offers Jimmy a deal that will spring him if he agrees to go undercover and help nail murderous crime lord, Little Junior Brown. But, if you know anything about Cage, if you know anything about Little Junior, he's not going down without a fight. It seems like Ian's not going down without a fight either. Um, just the other night, he, he took my bins out without asking. Now, admittedly, I did forget 
have I thanked him for it? Absolutely not. And I won't do it. It's not in my character to do it. I won't give him the satisfaction. I won't even bring it up. Because I know that he'll bring it up. Because he needs that satisfaction. He craves that recognition. And look, you're playing right into my hands, cuck. You're playing right into my wheelhouse. Why don't you go and varnish your little shed one more time, eh? It's getting cold now. You'll have your Christmas lights on before long. I can already see it. you can have some little bulbs all up on your shed and whatnot whilst I'll just put my Nicolas Cage cardboard cut out facing outwards. You know, and we'll see who's got the better decoration. Spoiler alert, it's me. Still got his red face. I just thought you should know he's still got that red face. It's um haunting, if anything. It's not, you know, it's not so much jolly more does it speak to the message of, oh, what are those BLM protesters up to this time? And that's not a message I want conveyed on this podcast. We support BLM here. We support women. We support Black Lives Matter. We support Nicolas Cage. We do not support Ian and his bin-fucking activities on a weekly basis. So Kiss of Death currently sits at a Rotten Tomato score of 68%, ranking it roughly as neither here nor there. Additionally, it's underperformed at the box office, making only $14.9 million against a budget of $40 million. However, the critical consensus of the film praises the ensemble, especially heaping accolade after accolade onto Nicolas Cage's already sturdy hog. For example, Kenneth Turin of the LA Times called Cage one of the few actors who gets more interesting from film to film, which is exactly what I've been saying for over 20 weeks now, so catch up, Kenneth. Official Rager and Cage supporter Roger Ebert called Cage a real movie star, with the Washington Post helping raise Cage's hog to a proud foremast in adding that he dominates the camera. You love to see it. David Caruso, on the other hand, who actually left the TV show NYPD Blue in order to film Kiss of Death, however, would actually go on to be nominated for not one, but two Razzie Awards for the worst new star, which just goes to show that if you dare try and go pound for pound with the greatest actor of this generation, both your career and your wife are getting fucked. Now, actor-wise, we actually have a fair few Cage connections here. You know, we have uh, Cage and Sammy L, both previously starred together in 93's Amos and Andrew. Boy Yourself a Crack Crack, Sammy Jack and Ving Rames would both appear in Pulp Fiction, but Cage would bring Rames back down to solid ground as they would both go on to feature together in Con Air two years from now in 1997 with the roles somewhat reversed here. So in the words of that meme, everything is cage? Yeah, always has been. So let's get down to the nitty, and indeed the gritty, as we dive in to Kiss of Death. So the film starts uh, over a scrapyard, um, the same place many careers end up. If you're not Nicolas Cage, it's where David Crusoe's almost ended up after this film. Uh, Caruso uh, is with his wife, daughter, and the babysitter. They're in, uh, in a house, obviously not the not the scrapyard. Um, now, annoyingly, he was actually the only redhead in that household. So, I've got to 
call bullshit on that, that the um, ginger gene wasn't passed on. You know, they say that we're dying out, but don't you worry. There are a lot of cards at play that you, you don't know about in the uh, the red-headed game. So let's just say that's all you need to know about that. Now we learn that both Jimmy and Bev, his wife, are recovering alcoholics. She's off to a, an AA meeting later in the day. And I don't know about you, I don't know anyone called Bev. I assume it's short for Beverly. Um, honestly, I thought that the only place that name exists is in Coronation Street. But later that night, we get Michael Rappaport uh, playing Jimmy's cousin, Ronnie. He's rocking up at the apartment in a panic. He desperately needs a driver to help move some stolen cars. Now, Jimmy resists at first. He doesn't really want any part of it, but... After Ronnie begs him, like the fucking cuck that he is, making him the kiss of death's official Ian of the film, because every Cage film's got to have one, he does eventually relent and take up the job. The promise is going to be a very easy, in and out, two-hour job. Don't worry about it. But he does have a little cause for worry. At seven minutes and 56 seconds, we have our first confirmed Cage sighting. With an especially buff cage. Uh, now let me tell you, his sleeves are off. He is yeeting people around and kicking bodies and choking people out. And he's also um, he's also asthmatic because that that's how you add layers to a villain. Uh, a very onion actor, our cage. Now the random person that he just throws out of the truck that Jimmy's supposed to be driving. I think he's just meant to be a stranger who they've paid off to be a passenger with him so they can try and not draw suspicion to themselves. So he just launches him onto the floor, honestly, with incredible strength and velocity. Kicks him a few times as well, like as if the poor guy hasn't had enough trouble. I don't know if he was already unconscious or just sleeping, but he didn't seem to mind. He doesn't bring it up, to be fair. But Jimmy, I, I kind of love this bit here, Jimmy just picks him up and puts him back in the truck as if he's not been through enough already. Now Ron does call him as much, but honestly, Cage is built like a brick shit house here. Um he looks like a fucking the build of a gorilla and he could rip off a lesser man's hog clean. He has got the type of build of man who, you know, the second you look at him in a funny way, he will put your dick in an armbar. That's just the way I read it. I just report it how I see it. If he kicked your head through a wall, you'd be thankful for the opportunity. So, um, Junior Brown, we learn his name is, he uh, is the, the junior to a uh, an elder Brown. He is sort of the heir apparent to the Brown Empire. He's got a bit of a, a, bit of a temper problem, uh, as if his asthma wasn't enough. He's very much raging in more ways than one that the whole plan is behind schedule with all these stolen cars ready to go. So instead of what they were supposed to do, just stagger out the uh, the trucks to not draw attention, he orders that all four of them go out at the same time. This quickly draws police attention. And if there's anything you know about police films, as with from last week, they're very quick off the mark to uh, get to where they need to be. Not quite as convenient to an extent as Trapped in Paradise, but the trucks do get quickly intercepted by the police officers, including one Detective Hart, played by Sammy Sam Sam, the old Jackson man. He goes over to uh, Jimmy's truck, asking to produce some papers. The passenger 
just keeps asking where's his money, and then he just suddenly pulls a gun, um, which is completely unnecessary. A whole situation could have been avoided there. Caruso tries to stop the gun from going off. He puts his hand in the way, so he gets shot through the hand. That same bullet actually hits uh, Detective Hart in the face, just under his right eye, I believe it is. But then the two, three other officers that are with Detective Hart, they fucking pepper him with about 200 bullets back, um, which seems a little excessive. I mean, actually, upon reflection, I think about 167 of those bullets, at point-blank range, no less, actually missed. Um, I think it must have been fucking stormtroopers shooting at him. But you've got to love that swift American justice, Jesus Christ. Uh, As I said, Detective Hart gets shot under the eye as well. Crusoe's shot through the hand. They both get wheeled to hospital. So, you know, let's call our spade a spade. Hot start out of the gate here. Very hot start. We've got uh, Jimmy drawn back into this life of crime. Michael Rappaport's a little rat boy. Um, Samuel L. Jackson is kind of uh, like a, a very, just a very polite officer. He seemed very happy to sort of pull him over the truck stop like he couldn't possibly have anticipated that maybe this was some kind of giant con uh, some bullshit that they were onto. So we got some pieces moving across the board. Cage was nowhere to be seen. He yeets a man, you know, yeet in, get out. That's the message to take away from this. Do what you gotta do. Ragdoll a man like a fucking child and then fuck right off. So in the hospital, the district attorney, played by Stanley Tucci, arrives. He tries to get some names out of Jimmy, but Jimmy's not budging. Jimmy then speaks with a lawyer who is a representative of the Brown criminal family and he says, look, are you looking at the moment a uh, stretch of 30 to 40 years but if you take the rap you stay quiet you keep mum, you don't say any names, I can get you stretched down to three years maximum, two to three years but either way you have to serve some time. So he takes the deal. Uh, Bev visits Jimmy in prison, obviously very sad that you know, I thought we were past this. Jimmy is like a former criminal who's been trying to go straight and look after his family. I thought this was behind us. This is, you know, not I going to be honest, not ideal. Not ideal. Um, Ginger's go through enough trauma as it is without being, you know, having criminals on our fucking plate. So cheers for passing the good word there. You find in these prison scenes as well, um, and you can probably picture the one here where it's them in a jumpsuit on one side and the uh, sort of forlorn partner on the other side through this sort of perspex, or this glass barrier between them. They're both on the phones, but in hand-to-hand on the glass and trying to reach through. It didn't have that here. It's like just a little partition, as if you were just working in an office block and you just sat on a desk across from the person in front of you, really odd, <laughs> to be honest, really strange. Um, maybe that's the way some prisons work in America, I don't know. If you've if you've seen the inside of a prison, answers on a postcard, I'd be interested to know. Um, with this little partition, Jimmy keeps wanting to try and make physical contact. They're not allowed to make any physical contact, which I think must be torture. Like seeing cages engorged hog but not being able to touch it, um, which in my notes is a fate worse than death. Now, additionally, as part of Jimmy's deal, 
take the fall here. The sort of corrupt lawyer, he promised that, you know, we're going to take care of Bev as well. Don't worry about that. We're going to give her a $400 a week allowance, which I kind of think, you know, if I was if I was Bev, I'd, I'd be right now, especially in this economy, 400 a week. Uh, you know, not ideal. I can make it work, though. I can make it work. Now, Cousin Ronnie, the little brat boy that he is, he persuades Bev to work at his auto shop with him. He says that, look, I'll take care for you. I feel so bad about what's happened to Jimmy. That should be me in there. But let me try and make this right. I'll look after you if you just help run the accounts for me at the auto shop, which she reluctantly agrees. But then Ronnie starts shorting her on the allowance as well. He's only given 150, 150, 250 short of those $400 a week. So she's not happy about it. Why would you be? It's basically be like working with Ian. You're basically a prisoner. It's torture. Bev does later witness Ronnie assaulting some of the two-bit criminal who was uh, attempted to bring a stolen car to him. So she's very much thinking, of what, what have I got myself into here? This is not... This is bad. This is wrong. This is bad and wrong. This is badong. So Ronnie takes Bev with him to visit the Browns at a strip club they own, which is a front for all their business called Baby Cakes. Um, I don't know much about strip clubs, but I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a very good name. So well done. Well done, Kiss of Death. You got me. You got me there. A second clip of Nicholas Cage. Now, first we sort of see him as, uh, you know, a slightly paranoid, maybe a bit aggressive sort of mob. Um, heads, who he he can't quite keep a head on the mission, maybe he's a bit reactionary, a bit emotional. But here, he's laid down on one of the... Uh, on a table or something like that. And he's literally, he's literally bench pressing a woman no less than 40 times, which barely classes as foreplay in his books. And again, like I say, Cage is, Cage has worked out for this role. Cage is big for this role. Um, I don't think he's that big again. He doesn't work out that much for a role again until Con Air, I want to say, because he's quite big in that. He's been, Tone looked good in films before, but I can't understate how. I mean, you know, I was fluttering, and I think you know where it was like the, uh, the heartbeat of a small bird just like fluttering away makes you feel something, doesn't it? Makes you feel some kind of way. Now they notice Ronnie making a pass at Bev, but Cage, at the behest of his father, being a damn good hogger and all that, he interjects and says, "Like Ronnie, that's not cool." You're going to take her back to the house, her house, no bullshit, because in the words of Hall and or Oates, he cannot go for that, no can do. However, Bev wakes up at Ronnie's house, in a panic she takes his car, she's not thinking straight, just all over the place, and then ends up driving headfirst straight on into a semi-truck, which kills her instantly, which as we all know, is a metaphor for Nicholas Cage's hog. So, that being said, though, we do mourn Bev in the knowledge that Cage actively tried to avoid this. If there's one thing he hates, it's the senseless death of a woman because no one, and I'm going to put this out there, no one respects women more than Nicholas Cage. 
at Bev's funeral, Jimmy's been allowed to attend under supervision. He does then learn from speaking to, uh, I think it's Rose Rosie, the babysitter, that contrary to what Ronnie said, Bev wasn't at the house. Uh, Ronnie was directly responsible, so Ronnie had lied to his face. Ronnie was responsible for her death. So he makes a lunge at him, but he's held back. He's got this newfound hatred in his loins. He goes back to the DA, Gucci Tucci, and he says, look, you know what, I changed my mind. I am going to give you some names now. And he provides all of the names that were involved in the car hikes earlier in the film, except for Ronnie. It's all part of the long game. So he tells them, you know, these are the people you need to arrest. You also need to arrest me so that I'm not implicated in this. Otherwise, when you release me, I'm not going to last a day. This is going to directly implicate Ronnie. And credit where credit's due. You might not be Nicolas Cage, but you've got to respect a big brain, big hog moment when you see it. And this was definitely the definition of a big hog, big brain moment. So the family of Brown naturally suspect Ronnie of snitching and visit him at the auto shop in his little office. They uh, pop matching anoraks on, which is kind of cute actually, play Salutations by House of Pain. And then Little Junior beats seven shades of shit out of Ronnie, killing him to death. Now, I mean, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I think death by cage is the most honourable way that you can go out. You know, it's the way I'd love to go out in my dying moments. If cage was beating the shit out of me, I could then, in my dying moments, truly know how it feels to be his hog. Just think about that for a second. You know, and then you can, as it all fades to black, as you get pummeled and pummeled and pummeled, I'd die with a smile. No teeth, but I'd die with a smile. I'm also a big fan of Cage's all-white tracksuit vest combo here too. Look, he just looks like a major character in a uh, in a GTA game. Which you think about it now, how many... Grand Theft Auto characters were very likely based on Nicolas Cage. Just think about it. There's a lot of food for thought here between his hog and his uh, rightful acting recognition. You love to see it. So now he's given some of the names and he's basically returned himself in. Jimmy is let out to visit his daughter one time. Sammy Jack punches him twice in the stomach with the oddest underarm gut shot I have ever seen. Um, it takes a lot of swing. It's a very awkward punch. You know, I don't watch UFC. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lover, not a fighter, and I'm even worse at that. But that punch, it honestly looks like he's playing Wii Bowling, but he's launched the controller at the TV. But um, three years do pass. Jimmy's on the verge of serving his parole time. DA Juicy Tucci visits Jimmy again and then informs him you know, some things have changed. Little Junior, uh, Little Junior Brown, he's now set to take over the criminal empire as his father, Big Hog Junior, is in hospital. Now, Jimmy is like, "Look, I've, 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 I've helped you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I don't want to snitch again. You've already put me through enough shit. I think it's fair to say." But the slimy little DA, the slug boy of a DNA, DNA. 
he probably has got slug DNA to be fair, but he tells him that, uh, look, once this is done, I give you my word that you will be a free man once and for all, and you won't hear from us again. And now with that in mind, it does then lead us to this week's Random Cage Scream of the Week. Enjoyable things about that scene as well, and despite um, the, despite the trauma, I mean, let's not take that away from Cage. He was just bouncing up and down on the spot in a full white suit. I think he'd been on the old snort, snort, sniff, sniff. If you get my drift, but now Cage is large and in charge. We're starting to see him become a little bit more unhinged without his father's guiding hand there. Jimmy meets with Detective Hart in a uh, like the upstairs of a Chinese uh, restaurant, I think it is. And he says, but now we need you to go after this guy called Omar. Uh, Omar is played by Ving Rames. It looks like uh, Junior actually provides him with sort of stolen cars and guns and these sort of things. So, you know, first of all, in my notes, I have dollar dollar Ving's your. And if Omar is basically the white whale. He's the big prize. We need to go through Cage to get to Omar. Then, if Omar's the white whale, the Cage is the guy who fucks the whale's wife. Right? Does that make sense to you? Do you get it now? Twenty-three weeks in, he's gonna—he's going to fuck your wife. This is this is the point I've been making for a long time. So Jimmy wired up. He heads to the strip club. Uh, baby cakes. Little Junior spots him, remembers him from the heist three years ago. They have a little conversation about losing loved ones. Junior then spots one of the drunk patrons of the strip club grabbing at one of his strippers, summons him over, and then gives him, a, quite frankly, a stern talking to. He says, you know, which hand did you touch her with? And he puts his right hand down on the table. He's like, now look, we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. I need to send a lesson to you. He looks like he's going to put his cigarette out and just burn his hand with it. But then um, instead he gets the guy to dance on stage in his undies. He's like, look, this work, this dancing work, it's hard work. And obviously you don't respect it. So we're going to teach you a lesson. So he... Um, now becomes arguably perhaps the greatest male feminist in cinema. And I cannot overstate how much he fucking respects women. All right. Next up, we have Jimmy and Junior taking a little car ride together. And then Cage starts talking about, about acronyms, how he sort of helps keep himself focused. This is what it's all about. Um, and we'll play you this clip here because I think it really highlights that he might just be one of this world's foremost thinkers and raw doggers. Know what an acronym is? It's like letters of stamp for things, you know, like FBI, TGIF. You understand? 
Yeah. I have an acronym for myself. You know what it is? B A D. B A D. Balls, attitude, direction. You should give yourself an acronym. It helps you visualize your goals. How about FAB? Fucked at birth. No good. Too negative. I know this is what I mean. You want to talk about your your WAPs, your your WAPs. Well, we're talking BAD. We're talking balls. We are talking attitude. And of course, we are talking direction. Balls, attitude, direction. Um, or wax, uh, whack, wet, wet ass cages, or bat bar, big ass hogs. That's we're all about acronyms on this one. And I think you can all agree that those are all absolutely outstanding contributions to the uh, to the acronym conversation. So after this, uh, Jimmy and Junior visit Omar. Just to go over some details of a car transaction, Omar does take all of the cars except for an Explorer because it's red. Uh, He also mentions not liking Jimmy because he smells fear. But I suspect this is a complete and utter gingerist play here. The car's red, he's got red hair, and we shouldn't be at each other's throats. You know, we put blacks and reds together and what do you get? A roulette table. So Jimmy relays the details of the meeting to Hart, who tells him to stop taking his wire off because they need some evidence. He took off his wire earlier in the film the first time he meets uh, Junie properly at the strip club, throws it out of the window, gets a little roughed up in the toilet, but Junie says he's not got a wire. He's slowly, slowly earning his trust. Hart says if you take the wire off again, we're going to end up beating each other up in a who has the biggest grudge grudge match. But what it should really happen, and the way that lads work things out, just to give you a little insight here, um, it's a big old cathartic hog-based bro-down to really iron out the kinks in the relationship. It works every time. Flaccid hog presented. You slap it to and fro like a game of conkers. The first lad to pass out loses. But then they go for another meeting with... Jimmy and Junior going back to meet Omar. Jimmy ends up just shooting Omar in the fucking head and Jimmy gives maybe, just maybe, the single most insincere reaction to someone being shot in front of you that I have ever witnessed. I'm going to play it for you now, but let me tell you, I've killed men before and this is not the reaction. Fuck y'all want, man. Oh my god. Oh my god. You killed him. Have some coke on me. Jesus. Jesus. What did you do? What did you do? What the fuck did you do? What did I do? You fuck with the bull, you get the horns. That's what I did. Oh, Jesus. What did you do? 
What did you do? Oh, God. What did you do? Oh, Jesus. What did you do? Oh, God. Oh, God. What did, <laughs> what did you do? Anytime anything happens now, I'm just going to stop and just look completely unaffected and be like, what did you do? My cat takes a, a poo in his litter tray. What did you do? Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. A, a letterman leaves a you weren't in slip in my door. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. What did you do? What, <laughs> what did you do? Um, it's so applicable to anything. You know, when I inevitably miss the bus for work on Monday, look at myself in reflection. Oh, God, what did you do? But just remember, it doesn't matter what you did, as long as Nicolas Cage took the balls by the horns and hogged your wife, then the wheel keeps on turning, the world keeps on spinning, and that's all that matters, you know. It's been a very awkward car ride back. Uh, Jimmy goes over two points. Um, or should I say Junior goes over two points to Jimmy. He asks one, do you have a more positive acronym yet? And then he explains uh, in something that he's never told anyone before, he hates the taste of metal in his mouth, so he has to use plastic cutlery. And, you know, when you reveal something like that to a confidant, someone you hold dear to yourself, we got to really hope that Jimmy doesn't somehow betray that trust, because that would be a tiny hog move, a real Ian move. But then after he's dropped off, he gets abducted by, I believe it's Omar's men, the... The roulette alliance is well and truly over, let's put it that way. Have we learnt nothing? He gets taken to a meeting between the DA and the DEA. They're all slapping the wieners about the shop. It turns out, in a little twisty boy, that Omar was an undercover agent for the DEA. And then it's third time's the charm for Jimmy, who, whilst they're all arguing, he reveals he was finally wearing a wire. He plays back the recording to all attended that proves that Junior killed Omar, subsequently leading to his arrest. But the celebration is short-lived in a victory for rages and cages across the world, as Junior's, and I think it's fair to say, substantially hogged lawyer. He's Saul Goodman of a lawyer, absolutely Goodman's him out of the clink, gets him on bail. He basically picks apart the entire case, that the DEA had built. He's using Omar's drug use, witness testimonies of him being uh, abusive, the fact that the police were putting guns back on the streets to um, sort of secure their own evidence in a very self-defeating way. So basically like a vulture tearing at a corpse for scraps. They uh, are left with no choice but to uh, let Junior out, as there's a bunch of other evidence they just don't want don't to give um, to the judge of that case. Now, this happening, they move Jimmy and his family into witness protection somewhere in these woods whilst all this lawyering is going on. Somehow, Junior, who is in prison, manages to get to the woods, abduct Jimmy's daughter, leave her in the woods with the BAD acronym painted on her head, and then get back to prison to be released. Um, so this was one. The, this was notably one of the points of the movie when I was when you have to sort of suspend your disbelief a little bit. You know, if they said that Jimmy um, was out of the picture and then Junior had sent a goon, one of his men, to go and do this, then that's one thing. They don't explain how this was possible at all. It is 
heavily implied um, as such that Junie was behind the whole thing. I have no idea how. We have to assume here that Junior has somehow learned how to, to teleport and warp across great distances, considering as well how he didn't exactly know where they were. I think his lawyer might have been able to tell him that's sort of the, the vague implication that you get here. But this is... And not that the movie's been bad so far. This was the one point where it does quite take you out of the movie a little bit. You're like, hang on a minute. I've accepted a few things so far, but that's fucking absurd. But like I say, it's entirely explained. It's anyone to guess how he gets in and out, in and out. Um, but as you know, our Lord and Savior Nicolas Cage works in mysterious ways. So that's, that's your answer. Deal with it. Um, wow, brilliant. So Jimmy, uh, understandably pissed off about having a criminal, a murderous criminal, steal his daughter, um, sort of leaves the witness protection, gets a gun, he returns to his house, uh, he sees BAD sprayed on his front door, he's intercepted here by Detective Hart, and the two of them decide to confront uh, DA Tucci Tucci, don't touch his Gucci, about Junior getting out, and all these corrupt behind-the-scenes dealings that he's that the DA's got in place to weasel his way into the position of federal judge. But he's not bothered. He's just like, you try and you try and get something on me. You see what happens. He's not bothered, the little slippery, slimy slug boy that he is. So what does Jimmy do? When he gets a gun, he pumps up his hog for action, and he tips off Detective Hart a little bit. Look, how quickly can he get to the strip club? Because I'm going to confront Junior, which is exactly what he does. So as he confronts Junior, couldn't help notice the creep from before who... He had, uh, who Junior had made to dance in his pants still hanging around. So at this stage, I'm wondering if that embarrassment wasn't enough, then you clearly go here to be humiliated. But if that's if that's what you're into and you pay any way to do it, then uh, who are we to judge? Just keep your hands off the performers, all right? So a fight does quickly break out. Uh, Junior is yeeting Jimmy like a rag doll. Again, you'll love to see it, and I hope one day Cage treats my hog in the exact same manner. Now, so even though we've not seen any evidence that Jimmy can fight, that Jimmy's a tough guy, he could talk a good game, but we've not seen anything to suggest that he can handle himself in a fight. We're supposed to have this perception that maybe he has some kind of equal footing, that he can hold his own. The only reason he does gain a slight advantage is due to Junior's asthma sort of taking him out a little bit. But when he does get his inhaler back and quite literally has his second wind, he just fucking wrecks him again until, fortunately, uh, Deus Ex Detective Hart turns up, makes the arrest on him. He gets accidentally punched. Well, I say accidentally. Junior twats him in the face, probably thinking he's just someone trying to interject. So now they have him, at the very least, on a, a charge of assaulting an officer. So Hart and Jimmy get to talking outside. He's wondering, you know, why would you go on this suicide mission? It doesn't make any sense. And he reveals that again, he was wired. He recorded Junior's confession of murdering Omar. He recorded the DA in the earlier conversation, basically admitting that he's a corrupt piece of shit. But then, fully erect, with all of these recordings in tow, he, and Rosie and his daughter, 
They leave the city in the Red Explorer Omar turned down earlier. And then the credits roll on Kiss of Death. Um, and that's what I forgot to mention as well. His wife dies. Jimmy's wife dies in a tragic accident. Uh, smashed. Dying instantly into a truck. He's in prison for three years. And when he comes out, he marries the babysitter. That's a piece of shit move. Don't don't at me on that. Don't fight me on this. That's a fucking scumbag move. So, yeah, so Kiss of Death. Kiss of Death. Um, not great. Not terrible. I think it's a fairly middle-of-the-road flick. It had potential, but it sort of leaves you wanting more. Not in the good way. Um... I think agreeing with all the critics on this one, can you, me agreeing with critics, can you imagine that? Cage was, of course, the best thing about the film. His screen presence and his intensity make Kiss of Death watchable. He does steal every second of screen time that he has. There's a slight swagger to him here, something bubbling just under the surface that could have quite easily entered full Cage territory, but steered just far enough away so that his presence isn't overwhelming. There's some weird ticks to his character, and then we have to, again, so I'm still trying to process this, we have to make the assumption that he has magical powers, that he can warp halfway across the country in moves that are never, ever explained. Um, but, you know, it, suspension of disbelief, I suppose, stretched here. It is what it is. The midsection did sag a little bit, which is a shame, because the, the start was really well done, um, Michael Rappaport's like sleazy character brought some feeling of momentum to the film. Um, it was a good opening sequence, but then, you know, like I say, we sag in the middle a bit. The ending as well did come across as a bit too sudden, anticlimactic. It it felt like the the writer was like, "Oh shit, we've got uh, two pages of script left. We need to wrap this up now." You know, it's like for all the sort of seediness and the criminal underbelly that this world builds up. The last few minutes, like I say, just felt a little too neatly wrapped up for me. Um, I've really liked as well if we could have seen uh, Stanley Tucci's slimeball DA get his comeuppance rather than it just be broadly assumed that he does. Um, I think the assumption is that Jimmy passes the tapes to Samuel Jackson's detective heart and then he doesn't get his promotions and the various other corruption that's going on with the police, that which could have been explored a bit more as well. Um, and I think, like at the start, obviously mentioned that um, Damien Harrenhal was nominated for a Razzie for, for sort of worst new star, which I think I think is a bit excessive. I don't think he was bad in the film. Um, I don't know that the script served his particular style of acting that well, and I don't know if, if he was necessarily the right casting choice for this. Um, I mean, you you feel a little bit bad sort of reading about this because this he left like quite a successful show in NYPD Blue to come and do this. This film was supposed to be his big break. This was supposed to secure him as uh, a movie star, an action star, and unfortunately, it's just didn't work out that way. Again, no fault of his own. I don't think he was bad, but you're against um, other acting heavyweights in this film. Nicolas Cage, of course, the greatest actor of this generation. You've got Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Ving Rhames, Stanley Tucci, who's known as a great character actor. You've got just bigger, 
personalities who draw the eye more in this film have more of a name behind them at this point as well. So, uh, yeah, I think, unfortunately, David Crusoe just, again, nothing against him. He did the most with what he had, just a bit out of place with this film. But then just keep in mind, just keep in mind, that's uh, seven years later, 2002, he would be cast in CSI Miami for quite a long time. So he all worked out in the end for uh, for David. But most importantly, he worked out for Nicolas Cage as um, the first film of 1995. Next week, and this is the big one, this is what I mentioned earlier, this is going to be a big one. Next week, we go to Leaving Las Vegas, a very crucial film in the canon of Cage. Not only is this going to be an award-winning film, which we're going to get into, this is going to be the first of an incredible run of films. We're talking Leaving Las Vegas, we're talking Con Air, we're talking Face Off, we're talking The Rock. Four untouchable films, an absolute fantastic four streak of films. Uh, You know, we're kicking off, we're moving on to bigger, better, sturdier, hoggier things next week, and I hope to see you there for it. And thus wraps up episode 23 of Cage Rage, a Nicolas Cage podcast. Kiss of Death gets a bronze cage from me. Um, let me know what you thought about it. Always interested to hear. You can find us on the usual social medias, at Cage underscore podcast on Twitter, at Cage Rage Pod on Instagram. And we are on the following streaming services, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Podchaser. Spreading the love, spreading the cage, spreading the good word of the great Satravar generation as we progress on the train to true Cage Nirvana. Hopefully we'll see you next week for episode 24, but until then, keep on, keep on caging. Bye!